Hello, and welcome back to Perspectives. Today's episode features a leading industry light from the global private credit sector. Indeed, and many column inches have been dedicated to the rise of private credit and how private credit, to coin a description that's often used by Amos private credit affiliate, the ACC, can finance the economy. And the private credit revolution has been boosted by several factors, not least the disintermediation of banks. While this is not a new trend, events and stress over the past year have brought it back into focus. Graham Goldsmith is the CEO of CrossOcean and has over 30 years of experience working in this space. And we're delighted to have him join us today. Graham, welcome to Perspectives. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, John. It's, uh, it's nice to be invited and really appreciate the opportunity. That's awesome. Hey, uh, Graham, you, you've had a remarkable career in financial services. What, what attracted you to financial services and specifically asset management? And how did it all begin? Well, I, you know, like any college uh, or near college graduate was just trying to find a job. And like many of my uh, colleagues uh, graduating in 1989 from Middlebury College, went into a bank training program at Chemical Bank. And uh, I went through the training program and through the credit credit training. And in in 89, from 1989 to 1992, it was a pretty tough time for banks. And so I was a brand new lending officer in 1990 after going through the program and inherited a, a loan portfolio of loans that were largely in workout. I thought it was sort of a bad thing at the time, but I got, you know, sort of hand, hands-on experience in negotiating with borrowers and doing credit analysis at a very early time. And it was sort of at the end of my time at, at Chemical, the bank was going through a reorganization and kind of cleaning out some of the bad assets that they had. And they, I remember they sold uh, some of my loans at very big discounts that I thought were going to do just fine to a firm called Apollo. Uh, and so that was sort of my first introduction to asset management. And I thought, gosh, it would sort of be interesting to buy loans at big discounts to par rather than making new loans at LIBOR plus 100. And so that's how I really got interested in asset management to start with. Yeah, it's a good business. <laughs> what? So what inspired the creation of Cross Ocean? And, and I think you and Steve Zander worked together at Bank of America, sort of co-heading that global special situations group. And how important was that experience and, and, and that relationship? to your vision? Well, we, we um, at Bank of America created what I thought was the most profitable special situations group in the world. Um, it, you know, we not only had a very large flow credit trading business, uh, we also had a very large special situations business. And I, I did that for about 20 years. So a, a long time there at the bank. And I think I had the best job at on Wall Street, uh, but I really, really wanted to start our own business at some point in time, uh, and I knew it would take us at least five years really to get it up, up and running, and to have the energy to do that. I decided that if I, you know, waited into my fifties, I may never, I may, I may never do that. So, uh, in uh, 2014, I left the bank and started sort of a long, non-compete period and convinced Steve to join us to create Cross Ocean Partners with the backing of Stone Point Capital. And what we were trying to do is really create the great things about our business at Bank of America at Cross Ocean. And um, the strategy 
then, you know, when I, when I started, when we started in 1994 at the bank and what it is today is almost identical around private credit and special situations. And that's buying secondary bank loans from banks uh, or what we'd call motivated non-economic sellers, top of the cap structure. So that means senior secured, um, but generally illiquid and in sort of uncompetitive processes. And it's sort of been that same business now for the last 29 years. And, you know, look, when you look at before even Cross Ocean and certainly during Cross Ocean, were there any like one or two defining moments that you now view as changing the trajectory of, of your career, your business? Well, before Cross Ocean, I, I, I was really, really fortunate uh, in, in the old days uh, when you started on Wall Street, you got to rotate through a bunch of different groups uh, within your, you know, all the firm, all the firms did it. They don't really do that now. And I rotated um, through in 1994, the bank loan trading group, which was a brand new group at the time. It was a group that was started and run by uh, a gentleman named Victor Kozla, who's now CEO of Strategic Value Partners. And he had left uh, Merrill in 1998, but he really taught me the business, um, taught me how to source and how to originate you know, pulling loans out of banks um, when they wanted to sell something. He taught me about top of the capital structure, investing. Um, and, you know, when he created SVP, while they're, they're a similar, but, you know, a bit different strategy than us, I was really impressed with what he did. And so a lot of what we did, you know, we, we thought about what Victor did and, you know, that was sort of kind of led to um, what we did today, what we do today. And then defining, um, over my years at Merrill, what was really interesting to us, we had this global platform really based uh, you know, West, in Western Europe and the US. And we always found that being you know, big in Europe was a comparative and competitive advantage for us. Um, European banks, you know, till today, they, have, they usually have about 2 trillion euros of non-core assets. Um, that makes them the ultimate motivated non-economic seller. And a lot of those assets are not only European credit assets, they're often U.S. bank assets. And certainly after the 2008 crisis, it was very much a focus of European banks of pulling capital back to their home countries. So 2008 was pretty defining for us in terms of our strategy and it being you know, a big European and U.S. focus, but a big European focus certainly from the sourcing side. And when we created Cross Ocean, it was very much uh, Steve and my's desire to kind of recreate that, um, to have a sort of a balanced firm between the U.S. and Europe with sourcing capabilities, not only in the U.S., but in Europe as well. Uh, so let's go to that, um, that moment then in 2015 with the backing of Stonepoint Capital. Um, you worked together with the European Special Situations team and Steve Stander, as you say, to spin out and form Cross Ocean. Could you then provide an overview of the firm's strategy and, and why is this particularly relevant, particularly in, in this economic period? I'd say the, fir the first thing, just maybe as, as a backdrop, um, the senior partners of the firm uh, have worked together for a very long time, some of us for more than 20 years. So we were sort of replicating or recreating our senior management team that we had back at the back at the bank. So that was sort of our, our, our first focus and to kind of replicate replicate the, 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 the strategy. Um, when we first um, got started, uh, we were sort of uh, coming out of the 2008-2009 crisis. You'd say 2015 was pretty far, pretty far along after that, but not the way that European banks think. 
European banks are slow to move. They had lot, lots of non-core assets, but some, sometimes it takes them four or five years to reserve against those non-core assets. And by that, mean, what I mean by that is they, they're able to mark them down to a price of which they can clear in the market. So that was uh, interesting um, to us. We had done a lot of that, uh, or buying non-core assets out of European banks at our time at Bank of America. Um, and um, we really wet, really wanted to continue on that theme uh, here at Cross Ocean. And I, and I probably should mention um, the way that we come at the, the banking, what I call bank disintermediation is a bit different than most private credit firms. Most private credit firms is really making new loans in uh, where banks used to make loans, but they're making new loans instead of banks. Our strategy is buying loans from banks, um, where banks want to shrink in a particular loan asset class, maybe in a particular country, maybe that assets become distressed, or maybe it's become that loan assets become capital inefficient. So we're trying to take advantage of that same theme, but in a bit different, in a bit of a different way. Private credit funds of all types have been created for a multitude of reasons, and one being, as you've mentioned, the disintermediation of the banking industry, um, but also the incredible velocity of change in federal banks' money creation and, and recent interest rate increases. So why then is this such a special asset class now, and how excited are you for the future? Well, very excited for the future. The, the asset class, when you think about it, really started uh, in earnest in probably 2012, and it, it started with the U.S. regulators really kind of forcing upon the banks what I'd call the, the, the something they call the leveraged loan lending guidelines. And the the regulators said, look, we don't want a company to borrow more than uh, six times leverage. So what, what that means is they don't want cash flow to be or sort of debt to be more than six times cash flow. We want it to be more like four. So the U.S. regulators sort of forced banks to make less risky loans. Um, if you had access to the Federal Reserve window, and that really opened up an opportunity for, for, for private credit, and that's when it got started in earnest. The other thing that was interesting about the product that didn't really make a difference for the first several years that uh, many, of the, many of the private credit firms were doing, doing it, it's floating rate. And traditional public pension plans and things like that had always, um, or had, you know, very frequently bought fixed rate bonds, which in a, in a world of declining interest rates did quite well. But as you can imagine, as the interest rate environment has changed over the last two years, those floating rate loans have ended up being very resilient. Um, and so investors have gotten extra yield as those rates have gone up. And if you remained only in fixed rate instruments, the performance has been really, really tough for those uh, investment managers. So you know, from a performance perspective, the product has done very well. Floating rates added to that. It's, it's given investors access to a market that was traditionally closed um, to, own, to banks only. But it all started in 2012 with the leverage loan lending guidelines where you know, the regulators really wanted to reduce the credit risk within the banking system. You, know, you, you mentioned, Graham, about the importance of or the, the size of the European credit market. Um, is your strategy U.S.-based or European-based or, or both? How would you view that and sort of where are the unique opportunities as we speak? We always say global, uh, and by global, we mean Western Europe and U.S. Our 
investment strategy uh, and analysis is, you know, identical um, in the U.S. as it is in in Europe. Um, and then we have a lot of companies where we buy loans uh, backed by those companies that are both sit both in the U.S. and and Europe. We have some of our investors that prefer things that are a little bit more U.S. focused, and some that prefer that are a little bit more European focused. And then we have some investors that want that want both. Um, it's it's not one or the other. Uh, it's it's really more because the analysis and the and the credit reviews are the same. It's really more how we source. And while sourcing is a little bit different in Europe, it's it's not that different than the U.S. European banks tend to have larger pools of non-core assets, but they tend to be the banks are tend to be less well capitalized. So it's some you know while your pipeline is quite a bit bigger in Europe. Your, your success rate against that pipeline tends to be a bit lower. Uh, U.S. banks um, you know, have a very large uh, pipeline of non-core assets while it not being as big as Europe, it's about a third the size, but the U.S. banks are much better capitalized. So our hit rate with U.S. banks is a bit higher. The other thing that's sort of to note, as I said before, uh, many of the assets um, that we've bought um, in the U.S. have come out of European banks, and they've kind of pulled back to Europe. I mean, and you know, we can talk about it later, you know. But when you think about UBS and them subsuming 500 billion in assets from credit loan assets from Credit Suisse, some of those are going to come out as non-core. So, and as UBS sort of, you know, they don't need all those assets to run their business uh, effectively. So, just things like that and consolidation sort of creates opportunity for us. Let's just talk about a moment about the, the from the uh, perspective of the investor. Um, now you talked about the floating rate opportunity and why that's important to them. Are there other aspects of private credit right now that are very appealing to investors? And what do you see as the appetite for the product? You know, across the spectrum of investors. Well, it's interesting when we when we first got started um, in 2015. Uh, we naturally thought, hey, we'd raise a bunch of money really fast. And we found it to be pretty tough uh, when we, we first started. And I think in part, because uh, we buy illiquid assets. And so our our fund terms are generally pretty uh, long dated. And so we tended to fall into, you know, sort of the closed end vehicle bucket or, you know, the hedge fund bucket, but with very long lockups. And at the time, uh, middle market buyout and venture was very popular amongst investors, and, the, and there were really sort of outsized uh, returns. Um, since then, particularly in the last couple of years, those uh, returns on middle market buyout and, and venture have been tougher. Uh, and returns um, for, for our funds and for most private credit funds have been quite resilient. Um, and so uh, I, think, I think, you know, as end investors have gotten concerned about the path of the economy. Um, they've tried to, uh, or they've become a bit more conservative in their investing. And if you think about what we do, we're, you know, if, if, if buyout is sort of the last dollars in a capital structure, targeting 20% type returns, we're the first dollars in the capital structure. So lower volatility and variability of outcome, but we're trying to make those investors mid-teens net returns still. So still a very strong return. We're not gonna make somebody like InVenture like three to five times their money, but we're you know, hopefully not gonna lose anybody their money as well. So I think as investors have become, and investors have become more concerned 
about the economy, a potential recession, they wanted probably a lower volatility of potential outcome. And it's made the strategy a bit more popular and you know, fundraising's become a bit more, a bit easier over the last year and a half. Graeme, you've alluded to the combination of rising interest rates, the macroeconomic headwinds, geopolitical uncertainty that we're witnessing over the last 12 months. You know, it's testing the industry in a way not seen in, in many a year. Um, so what have been the key themes and opportunities that you've seen over the past 12 months? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of different things. There's sort of uh, one on the bank side, and I'll, I'll talk about that and the bank sellers in a second, but also on the credit side. I mean, there, there has to be an expectation that default rates are going to go up. Uh, even, even if the economy had no hiccups and was completely stable, which I think is, is probably you know, a bit of a stretch, just interest rates are higher. So you know, debt service coverage ratios for companies are lower, and that just is going to lead to more default. So you know, most prognosticators would say you know, defaults are probably about 2.5-3% today and going to go for the leverage loan universe to about 6%. Uh, in private credit, I've seen some surveys where, you know, on average, between five to ten percent of the portfolios, while it may be an amended or a waived default, somewhere between five to ten percent of the portfolio has had some sort of amendment or a waiver of a default. So defaults are definitely picking up, and uh, they have picked up, and they should pick up going forward. And that sort of, you know, I would ex- expect that, and that sort of, you know, is a challenge in some ways. But it's also an opportunity for those that actually have capital and then kind of lend into sometimes difficult situations to get sort of outsized returns. The the most interesting thing that I've seen that's happened uh, since the Silicon Valley bank um, induced sort of banking crisis is what's happened to bank funding costs. If you think about it, because of the government stimulus in the U.S. and and globally, uh, quite frankly. Um, and very, very low interest rates, banks took in deposits at a record rate in 2020 and 2021. Uh, and so that that cost of incremental of an incremental deposit in 2021 was about 70 basis points. And in fact, many banks were turning money away, but a lot of them did take take in, depo- in deposits. Then when the Fed and the central banks around the world started to raise interest rates, um, the front end rates went higher and simultaneous to that, or, or certainly shortly thereafter, Silicon Valley Bank, um, because of those increasing interest rates and they had to increase their cost of funding or what they were paying out in deposits, they went out of business. And I think the entire world looked at their bank account that day, um, about a year ago, to say, hey, you know, number one, is my money safe? And number two, if it's safe, you know, do I want to make a, a greater return than 70 basis points. And really the banking industry got turned upside down then uh, and they had to increase rates on deposits dramatically to where today the incremental cost of deposit is at least 5%. Um, So bank funding costs have have number one gone up a lot and that is for like an, think if the equivalent of an industrial company is the cost of goods sold their cost of goods sold just went up seven times. And so there's no bank uh, that's not struggling with their funding. Not surprisingly, also, you know, 
as we've had higher rates and after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, we've had the largest deposit outflow that has ever been seen in the history of the banking system. So now banks are competing for deposits and paying higher, higher, higher and higher rates. The regulators, of course, are, are always, uh, you know, pro-cyclical. Um, so on the back of the, the funding crisis or the deposit crisis here in the U.S., um, they're looking about looking into putting you know, greater capital requirements on the banks, um, and that's going to make it even more expensive for those banks to hold those loans. They know that. There's been a lot in the press about that, and that will probably come uh, at some point uh, next year. So this is the first time in 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 my career there that there was not a bank that you know we haven't found one yet in the U.S. that doesn't have a non-core loan portfolio that they're talking about um, about selling. So we've never seen this much for sale. Uh, it's a bit you know self-inflicted uh, by the banks and the regulators, but it's definitely a huge opportunity for us. KPMG is a global professional services firm providing audit, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity, and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry-leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. Given all that, what kind of investor actually is interested in the private credit strategy now? And has that changed over sort of the course of the last five to 10 years? Well, it, it, it's changed a lot. I think it was a very much 10 years ago, it was a real backwater. So they're very, very uh, bank lending wasn't considered or making new loans was not considered all that interesting. Um, our strategy, why we've been at it for 20, 29 years, um, there's always been some of that uh, out there. But as I said before, the the investors, you know, for the most part, were sort of, I'd say, 10 years ago were more risk seeking than they are today and in the risk in, in risk seeking they were focusing on more equity investments more bottom of the capital structure investments um, and they had didn't really have a bucket for private credit private credit didn't really exist it was sort of hedge fund or private equity we always sort of lived in in, in the middle somehow now that in the middle bucket has grown quite a bit uh, and you know allocators uh, to the space are very happy with double digit net returns and low volatility. So it's become a much more popular and a much bigger space. And again, I said 10 years ago, you know, we didn't even really have a bucket. <laughs> we were in between, you know, private equity and uh, hedge funds. You know, and, and the relationship between investors and um, alternative asset managers has changed over the years as well uh, in terms of the amount of amount of discussions, um, uh, transparency, information. H how would you describe the relationship with your investors and what has occurred um, in recent years? Yeah, so uh, we always came about it in a little bit different way. I think, I think in, the, in the old, old days, managers didn't give investors much transparency as to what they did. They kind of, 
everybody viewed their black box as more special than somebody else's and they didn't want the information to get out. We're sort of a bit of the opposite uh, to that. We're an open book. Uh, we give our investors a tremendous amount of information just in our quarterly letters and, and quarterly uh, reports. Uh, and we hold you know, very often quarterly review calls with our investors. Uh, the investors, our investors are, are tend to be you know, very institutional, uh, sovereign wealth funds, big public pension plans, insurance companies, and extremely large family offices. Um, and so they've been very supportive, and we like to go through deals with them um, to assess, you know, their thoughts. And they're and they're sometimes very well placed in terms of information as to how the economy is going and how companies are doing. So we view it as a real uh, partnership. Investors are requiring a lot more disclosure. They want to know how their money is being put to work. They want to know what their money is being put to work in, and they want to understand what the potential outcomes of your investments are. So I think, you know, my sense of it, that's changed a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, Graham, we hear a lot about the war on talent and, and to the extent that it is um, present in, in the alternatives industry. Um, bringing it then to your firm, how does Cross Ocean attract and retain the best people? Well, we, we've been really fortunate. Uh, we have terrific people. And as I said, the four senior investment team members uh, have worked together on and off for an extremely long time. And so by having that senior, those senior partners there, that gave us a lot of uh, stability. We've also been really fortunate in that we've uh, grown quite a bit uh, since we started in 2015. I think when we first started, we were five, 600 million. And today we're closing in on uh, seven and a half uh, billion. So we've had a good growth rate and that's really allowed our mid-level people to become senior people and to grow with us because they've had uh, more and more opportunity to move up, uh, to work on more interesting uh, and challenging things. Um, so we've been uh, super fortunate in that, uh, you know, we haven't lost any senior investment professionals. In the last few years, we haven't even lost any junior investment professionals. So I think, you know, part of that is growth and, and success and, and people have wanted to to stay there, we we tend not to bring in uh, real senior people, except for you know uh, very rare instances. We tend to bring you know folks in at the ground level, and they move up and grow with the firm. So we've been really uh, fortunate uh, on doing that. Um, you know, and we had the you know it's interesting. We had the same thing in our days at Merrill and Bank of America. We were all internally built. Uh, from the ground up. And I've always found that's the best way. If you grow up with people, uh, they're less likely to leave and if you have long-term relationships with them. And by extension then, if I understand this correctly, um, working live collaboration as opposed to virtual um, engagement, you're seeing that as being is the, really the, the, the best way forward, yeah? particularly for your investment strategy and firm. Yeah, for our investments, right? It, it was interesting, you know, during the pandemic, uh, you know, we were remote for a period of time. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how we wouldn't have done it without Zooms and Zoom and Teams and things. We actually added a bit more structure. Uh, we always had a pretty structure, structured investment process. It became even more disciplined as you're kind of corralling everybody in the world to make sure that we were all on the same page. Uh, but we're an in-person we're an in-person firm. Um, I think we've gotten, um, you know, 
when people are out of the office and traveling though some of the some of the technology and the and the some of the, you know the zoom, zoom and teams has really allowed us to work seamlessly um, when somebody has to be away working on a deal but yeah we're an in-person firm that you know it's a it's a well we have a investment committee process that is highly structured it is a very iterative process every single day as we go back and through our existing investments time and time and again and through prospective investments graham let's let's speak for a moment about some of the trends in the alternative investment management industry as a whole um and clearly technology is one of the things that um uh, drives a, a great deal in the industry there's been a lot of uh, talk about generative AI and the uses in the industry on on both the uh, the research as well as the operation side. W- what are your thoughts on how your firm embraces it, and how do you see that potentially impacting the broader industry? Well, I, technology impacts us probably in a different way than, than than most firms. We're I say high level. We're not big technology investors. Um, we. Our strategy, as I said, focused on top of the cap structure, getting our money back and having relatively fast paybacks on the things that we invest in. So by definition, technology is tough because technology is predicated, investing is predicated at a high growth rate and you have quite a bit riding on what the residual value of what that, whatever that you know product is. We, we tend not to like residual values in, in, our, in our strategy. However, Technology is really important because technology can really change industries quickly. Um, and you know, we have you know in Europe and the U.S. a tremendous number of uh, industries that are changing quickly, um, in large part because of technology. And some of those you know industries that were very stable just a few years ago are now turning into melting ice cubes, and will certainly change. You know how we think about them and how we invest them. I mean, one one great example is the cable and telecom industry. There's been a lot of infrastructure money raised to do fiber to the home, and that's really changing the cable industry. There's, you know, in the U.S., there's 75 billion dollars of cable bonds and or bonds and bank debt backed by cable companies that have lost in the last year and a half 20 points. At least of value, so you know you call it you know fifteen to twenty billion dollars of value, um, and that's really technological change. Just not many people, you know, have fixed landlines anymore. Not many people are watching you know uh, regular way TV anymore. Not many you know many people are moving their internet to five G or to uh, to fiber to the home, so that's a good example where technology can really upend an industry, and we're seeing that in in a number of industries. In terms of using technology for our investing side, um, AI to date has been really helpful. You know, we do deep fundamental analysis on each of our companies and our industries that we're involved in. It's a really helpful search tool at this point, um, but don't think of our strategy as a as a uh, trading algorithmic strategy. It's a bottoms up, deep research strategy. And when we tend to think of technology, we think of it as a a disruptor. (laughs) And is that industry that we're investing, is it gonna go way faster than we ever anticipated because of the technological change? 
Well, let's um, think about another big disruptor in these times, which is um, sustainable investment, responsible investment, ESG, depending on where in the world you are, how people look at this and through the lens that they think about these things. How do you, um, well, first of all, do you uh, integrate um, ESG into your firm strategy? And if you do so, how? Um we do we do on on, on, a, on, a, on a number of different levels i think the first level is just certain things that we won't do uh we haven't invested in tobacco uh or debt backed by tobacco companies we haven't done anything in um firearms we've avoided things like opioid you know investing in companies that have opioids and things like that there's just certain industries that that we just won't do um full full stop uh the, the other thing I think on ESG that, that we think a lot about is how does ESG impact the trajectory of that particular investment or industry? And so if you buy, and by the way, we're, we're buying, remember, for the most part, second, secondary bank loans and bonds. So we're not the equity investor in it. We're not determining the, the, the direction of that company. And while we certainly avoid certain industries, we're not in the in that seat that's sort of going to determine what that company invests invests in. But ESG is when you think about it, if if you have a company that's under ESG pressure, let let let's just say, for instance, a company that produces natural gas. We could have a long debate about whether natural gas is good or bad. Uh, I I could make an argument that the best thing you can do by reducing to reduce carbon emissions is replace a coal plant with a natural gas power plant, and you'll save, uh, you'll reduce carbon emissions by about 70%. However, there's a lot of investors that won't buy a natural gas power plant because of ESG concerns. So that's going to impact what your back-end exit value of that power plant is, and potentially the coverage that you have on the loan that you're buying. So I think you really have to take into account you know, what you will or won't do. I said, as we said, we have hard lines against certain industries, but we really need to think through how does ESG sort of impact a value of a particular company or asset that's our collateral and the loan that we own. So we have quite a bit of discussion on what the backend multiples are. Um, it's interesting, perceptions in and around ESG have changed a lot in the last three or four years. Um, uh, you know, three or four years ago, there was a lot of pushback against natural gas. Now, with the U.S. sort of um, having a huge effort to ship a lot of LNG and natural gas to Europe, given that they don't, the Europeans don't have access to Russian gas anymore, I think there's sort of less less concern around uh, natural gas. And then, interestingly, some of the U.S. Uh, allocators, it's very important. Uh, to them, um, some of the states that you don't take many ESG considerations into consideration when you're investing on behalf of uh, capital that they allocate. Um, and now we're coming to the part of the episode where we ask everyone, Graham, our guests, uh, you know, how optimistic they are. We, we ask you to think about it in a scale of one to five in terms of your level of optimism about the alternative investment management industry in the years ahead. So where would you... Um, grade your level of optimism on that basis well it's it's i i wish i could bifurcate the question in a couple of different a couple of different p, different pieces 
but I would I am a four plus uh, for the for the years ahead, um, and and the reason it's not and not even not a five is there absolutely will be a consolidation of returns in some of those uh, strategies in my opinion that have had outsized returns for the last um, several years, and so I think the returns may not be you know in in 2021 when when a lot of folks had. 50 to 100% returns in their venture funds. I think that's that may be a generational <laughs> single-year return. So I'm not sure if we're going to we're going to repeat that. Um, and the other headwind before I get into the tailwinds is the government will absolutely, at least I can speak to the U.S. government. In my my opinion, will have more regulation around uh, the industry. Um, a lot more pension money has been allocated um, to it. Um, a lot more savings have been allocated to the to the alternative industry, so I think you're going to see more regulation, you know, come and surround it surround the industry. That being said, for what we do, I'm extremely optimistic, um, and it really goes back to what I said earlier. I have never seen in my career banks having the funding cost issue that they're having right now. They're they're going to shrink. Um, they uh, and, and if the new capital requirements come and come about, they're going to shrink, you know, quite a bit. Um, and a lot of that loan activity is going to continue at perhaps an accelerated rate, push get pushed into the unregulated banking world from the regulated world. Um, and I, I think that's probably an unintended consequence. I don't think the government, you know, quite means to do to do what they're doing, but I think that's a, a likely outcome. Um, and private credit, uh, whether you're sort of making those new loans or, or, um, or managers like us who are buying secondary loans from banks that are trying to shrink their balance sheets, I think you're going to be the absolute beneficiary of that. I was going to say, and, and that development that you mentioned is part of this um, view that some commentators have that we are now in a golden yeah. age I've seen that. Yeah. for private credit. Now, assets under management for the industry somewhere estimating it is as high as 1.5 trillion, 2 trillion in assets. You know, has the private credit market maybe grown too rapidly, you know, too quickly? Uh, how, how much larger, if not then, how much larger, Graham, do you think that this market can grow to? Well, it's, it's interesting. So if, if you look at bank loan assets uh, at the end of 2000, uh, in the U.S., at the end of 2009, um, we were at about 13 trillion dollars they're at about 23 trillion dollars today and in europe um in 2009 it was about 23 trillion dollars and it's about 30 trillion today so there's sort of assets between european and u.s banks are sort of about 50 53 trillion versus one and a half in in private credit so i think i think it certainly could grow quite a bit i, I think it may grow to you know areas outside of traditional corporate credit you know you'll see Certainly more in consumer lending and 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 um, areas like that. However, you know, as you suggested, when you have a lot of growth of, of something, like not everybody's going to get it right. There's certainly going to be, uh, in some cases, you know, probably poor underrating, poor underwriting. Um, as the tide goes out, uh, there will be um, certainly some issues around loans that managers will have to work through, and there just haven't been any. Uh, when I started in banking in 1989 and inherited a loan portfolio in 1990, 
all my loans were work out. <laughs> yeah, it, it was the exception if you had a loan that wasn't working out. When you're working out a loan, it's a lot of work. And so there, there will definitely be industry um, challenges at some, at some point with some of the, some of the managers. So I think you, you'll, you'll, there'll be a greater bifurcation of returns and performance between good managers and bad managers when that tide goes up. And Graham, as a leader of the industry, looking at the broader industry, even beyond private credit, sort of, are there any, how do you look at the opportunities and tailwinds for the broader alternative investment management industry? So, the, so if, I, if I just thought about it from um, a fundraising perspective for, for a second, I, I would say, you know, most, most big allocators, public pension plans in alternatives are pretty well invested or not, you know, if they had targets of, let's just say, 40% in privates, they're probably right around that or maybe even over where they'd like to have their target be. And so the the biggest growth um, that we've seen for alternatives or privates or whatever you want to call it has really become from, I would say, the, the highly affluent individual you know, investor market. Um, and there's been quite a bit of growth there. There's quite a bit of, of, of writing or, you know, or sort of hiring by some of the really big firms that sort of beefed up their fundraising departments uh, to deal with wealth, you know, to to market wealthy families and and um, individuals, and if and if you look at what in individuals like about the space, um, I think they like uncorrelated returns to to regular way markets. They like you know less volatility, um, and they you know over time they'd like to have higher returns, and so I think it is you know for the sophisticated individual investor it's a good opportunity um, for them. And they're generally to the space very under allocated. So I think that the headwind is from what I would call traditional asset allocators, because they seem to be pr pretty pretty uh, well invested. The tailwind is the wealthy individual market uh, or investor is very under allocated to the space. And so I think you could see quite a bit more activity there. Graham, just to touch on uh, one point that you mentioned in terms of potential headwinds for the industry at large, including um, private credit. Um, at AMA, you know, we're only too well about uh, the increasing attention that the industry has received from, from the regulators, in particular uh, the uh, regulators in the U.S., um, and uh, their attention uh, and and their scrutiny of the private funds industry. Um, with the recent release of, of the private um, funds advisor ruling, um, amongst all the other um, uh, engagements that we've had over the last um, two years now, what are your thoughts on how these will all impact the industry? One thing I have to admit from my, my time at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, post-2009, or 2008, 2009 financial crisis, in addition to running global credit, uh, I also was responsible for regulatory reform for the markets business uh, at the bank. And so uh, I was lucky when I got to meet with the regulators, um, sometimes you know, weekly, if, if not monthly, and as they were you know, putting more capital requirements in us and, and more regulation. Uh, and so uh, what we found then, and which is I think what will happen now, is 
it really makes the barriers to entry a lot higher. And it was really tough for the small banks or the middle-sized banks to comply with everything that the regulators wanted in terms of information, transparency, et cetera. Not everybody can afford to have a compliance department with many, many people. <laughs> we have uh, on staff, you know, we have five lawyers that just work for the business full-time. Not everybody can afford that. In, in the old days, when I was first at, at Merrill, if somebody could raise a couple hundred million dollars, that was sort of enough you know, to kind of get in business and to comply with everything you need to comply. Today, I think to really get in business, you need to raise, you know, if not a couple billion, several billion dollars, not only to, to you know, have a, a world-class platform in terms of hiring talent and things like that, but I think the, to deal with the hurdles and the reporting that the, and the regulatory scrutiny that um, is going to you know, come to the alternatives is you know, a lot of it's already there, but I think it's, it's it will only pick up. Um, and as you have, it's interesting when you looked at the 2008, 2009 crisis, what the regulators found was a lot of the crisis was induced by um, the unregulated lending space really went away. The banks actually kept lending through the crisis. And my interaction with those regulators back in 2010, that was a real concern, was the unregulated space and they didn't have their arms fully around it. So I know it's a big focus of theirs. I, I don't know quite how it, it's going to play out, but I, I do think size will matter and the barriers to entry will be higher. So, so, so Graham, you, you clearly have had an exceptional career. Um, and so what's next for you? What are, the, what are the other things that you have on your agenda you'd like to accomplish? Unfortunately for me, I have no real hobbies. I've proven that I'm a pretty terrible golfer. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, uh, my wife and I are pretty charitably focused, particularly in education. She's sort of a, she's a lifetime uh, or lifelong um, elementary school teacher. So that's always been a focus around uh, education. But um, in terms of working and investing, this is the best hobby you could have. I think Steve and I would. Stephen, I, I don't want to speak to it for him, but I will. We'd both do this for free. The intellectual challenge to compete and invest every single day, and and why sometimes days are hard. Um, you know that is sort of the, you know, the opportunity and of a lifetime, and that's sort of what keeps us going. So um, there's nothing next for us. It's 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 this every day. That's great. Hey, hey, look, Graham, um, on behalf of uh, Tom and me, and and Amy and KPMG, really thanks so much for sharing sort of um, all the insights into CrossOcean, um, exceptional views on sort of the growing private credit industry and, and certainly the future of our broader industry in general. And thanks for, for joining us today on Perspectives. Thanks very much, John and Tom. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives, done in partnership with KPMG and part of AMA's The Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from AMA.org. Thanks for listening.